Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the the ability to come before you and pray uh, to you, talk to you, um, commune with you. Lord, we, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm in awe today that you have allowed us to even make it, um, to another fresh day, um, in a morning and an afternoon where our bodies are upright, our breath is working, our hearts are ticking, and we're able to look into the most life-giving, um, the most life-giving source that we possibly have. And that's only because of your grace giving it to us, your word, your scripture. Lord, I, I pray uh, that your Holy Spirit um would be working inside of us as we look at the the sixth tra- chapter of Acts, that you would give us revelation as to what you have in store, what you want us to learn from these these uh, precious texts. Thank you so much for this group of people, the brothers and sisters that are courageous enough and uh, disciplined enough to do the hard lifting, to really do the work um, of looking and reading and studying and and communing with you through it all in Jesus' name, Amen. You guys are so great. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching, and thank you for being in the room, guys. We're looking at Chapter Six. If you don't have your Bibles open, check it out. Welcome to another uh, verse by verse journey through the Book of Acts. We have just polished off the last uh, section of uh, Acts Chapter Five, and. Uh, <clears throat> And I would like to introduce a brand new character, brand new character in the narrative of, of Luke's uh, account called Acts. His name is Stephen. Good job, guys. Commonly known as the first martyr of the church. Um, he is the first. Uh, he's a very famous character in the book of Acts because of this. And he was the very first. What was the very first? Second thing, he was the first. of. You guys remember? It's the first martyr, yeah. He's that's that's pretty popular. What what is the other thing that he's known for? Given the Holy Spirit from very close. He was a deacon. He was the first deacon in church in the church, capital C. And deacons have traditionally played the role of martyr ever since. <laughs> that's a little joke <laughs> for all the all the church folks. Uh, the story. The story has two parts, this story of Stephen, and uh, and it follows very neatly within the next two chapters. So chapter six tells the story of why and how Stephen received his appointment inside the church, as well as Stephen's witnessing of this, of the gospel. And then chapter seven is neatly all categorized here. See, chapter seven turns a corner to Stephen's death. It's a super sad scene. 
But included in his death scene is prior to him dying is one of the most impressive, in my opinion, monologues of the redemption story of God's plan. He just lays it out there. It, it infuriates the listeners and it uh, brought about his death. But at the end of chapter seven, we see a hint of Luke's second main character in the book of Acts. Who's that? You remember? Paul. Yep. Paul. So, so we've been talking mostly about Peter up to this point. And the book of Acts is, is, is mostly about Peter and Paul. So now we're going to start seeing in this little bridge of Stephen being the bridge into a new character named Paul. So I'm going to go ahead and start. We need to finish out the last two verses of chapter five, which sets the stage for chapter six. So somebody read verse 41 of chapter five, if you will, to 42, please do it. <clears throat> then he left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Right. That Christ is Jesus. Mine says that Jesus is the Christ. Um, after the second trial, guys, they remember they got trialed twice? And then they got beat. They got flogged after the second trial. These apostles, they went back to the brethren. Um, isn't that something, by the way, side note, isn't that something that we could and should always have as a knee-jerk reaction after getting pain inflicted upon us? We should go back to the brethren, meaning back to our to our family, back to the church, the body of Christ. They had been just beaten and threatened with more severe punishment. Don't forget this. Yet, they what? They rejoiced? What's up with that? They had a reason for rejoicing, it says, but it's specifically about how they they viewed this pain that they just went through, where we can get to the why they rejoice. Why did they rejoice? Well, it was in how the Lord has counted them in their minds worthy, underline that word, worthy, to suffer shame for his name. Worthy to suffer shame for his name. Jesus himself, I can't help but think when I was uh, jotting this down, I couldn't help but get transported transported back in time to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, you guys know where I'm going, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. I'm just going to read it. You know that these words were ringing in the apostles' heads. It says this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, you know that they're sitting there saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to be counted as worthy to accept persecution. That's incredible to me. That's an incredible point of view. Truly, to them, it was an honor, an honor to receive this flogging. The honor comes from how God is using our life, your life, 
to mirror his son's life? Does your life mirror his son's life? In particular, mirroring, mirroring his sacrificial death. Not every Christian is granted this honor. I can't say that I've been granted this honor. An apostle rejoiced, in the apostles in that moment, rejoiced at having been counted worthy of that honor. Have you been counted that worth, worthy of that honor? God's purposes in granting it now and in this way seems to be in preparation for what will follow in chapter 6. So it sets the scene for Stephen. Because Luke's trying to make the point that being a believer will equal sign pain. Don't, don't be misled that this is not a club for prosperity and good, good vibes and feelings alone. There will be persecution, and it is coming in the, in the narrative. So the leaders of the early church were apostles. God's got a purpose, guys, in granting this pain. And now it's kind of becoming more in view in the narrative, that there might be some pain coming. Remember we talked about 10,000 people in the portico, Solomon's portico, and there's all these good vibes, and it uses this phrase of one accord. All the believers were one accord, and they kept on growing. It's kept, it kept expanding, no matter how much pain, kept expanding. Well, he's making the point, it wasn't because of the good vibes. It's because of the Lord. And he determined not to bring the apostles' death too quickly. Since they were needed to build the early church, we can see this. So it stands to reason to me that other disciples would be appointed to be the first to die. This is a very specific thing to think about in your own life, about your relationship with death. Leads us into chapter 6, where we encounter this man who does encounter death face on, straight on. For the first time ever, we see this man murdered in front of everybody for representing and witnessing to the people about Christ. So let's look at this. Let's go to chapter 6. The apostles totally ignored their, their orders to stop talking about this man named Jesus. And they kept on teaching and preaching. They kept growing the church. The church kept exploding, kept growing. They just kept kept on keeping on. So with that, chapter 6, verse 1. Somebody just go ahead and read verses 1 through 6, please. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, 
and Nicanor and Hyman yeah. and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Good job. Wow, those are hard names. <laughs> so I should have looked beforehand. Yeah, well, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> Pretty good job. Yeah, that was great. So we get we get this impression, at least I get the impression that the church is growing, don't we? Despite the the two the two apostles getting the smackdown from the government, from the religious leaders, the growth is still coming. But guys, it's growing because of growing because of the persecution. Historically, you guys can look look back in history and see that the church always grows when it's persecuted. Never, never fails. I've never understood Satan's logic because every time he pushes, we grow. <laughs> I've never understood this. But now we have a different problem. A lot of people are coming to this movement, this 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 uh, of one mindness, this church, capital C, and they're getting excited, but with the growth comes, you guys guessed it, growing pains. Christians are people, y'all. And anytime people gather, relationship difficulties can develop, can't they? <laughs> and may I suggest that the only solution, and I'm not saying something that's super profound here, but I will suggest, I want to suggest that the only solution to disunity among the church is strong leadership. Strong leadership. Here we're witnessing the second example of internal threats, internal threats to the unity within the church, within the early church, that being Ananias and Sapphira. So let's look at this. This complaint arose. You see that in the first couple verses there? A complaint arose. You can see it like a complaint box. They got the box out and they pulled a piece of paper out. And it says that there was, in the, a ter the term in Greek is this word right here. I think this is a, a very fun word to say. It's uh, go, go, usmos. It's the gusmos. And you have to say it like that. <laughs> uh, gusmos. And you have to say it like that because it means murmur or secretly complain. Have you ever met anybody like that? A gogosmos? Somebody who goes and, hey, did you hear about what the pastor talked about last week? Did you hear that they're not giving out bonuses this year? You know, this is called murmuring or secretly complaining. It tells us that discontent has started to percolate up into the early church and threatening to erupt into something a little bit more serious. The two groups involved were, were two groups uh, very important to understand. There was, there was group one and group two. This is the Hellenistic Jews and then the Hebrews. There was, these are two groups that existed in the early church. And these two groups are coming into view. The first group of these Hellenistic Greek-speaking, I should say Greek-speaking, right? they could speak Greek. 
they came from the outskirts of town. They had liberal views. They had a little bit more progressive outlooks on life. They've seen some things. And they came from the outside out in the country, as you could say. But inside the city were these Hebrews. The Hebrews spoke Aramaic and Hebrew, obviously. But these guys were really conservative. And they were all about the old school. So you got some, I mean, maybe you could call it Democrats and Republicans. I don't know. <laughs> don't take that too far. But there was a long history of tension between these two groups. They always had it out for each other. Hebrews were more conservative and the Hellenistics were liberal. And they, they, they were like a little less likely to be following Judeo law. Because most of the time, Greek speaking, you know where this came from? It's because the Hellenistic Jews went and married Greeks. And so they had to like speak Greek. Well, then the children were born speaking Greek, but they're Jewish. So you see how the generations would just start populating? So the Hebrews were like, well, you're not really Hebrew. You speak Greek. Anyway, that's an aside. Both of these groups had their respective widows. Pretty obvious. Sometimes men die when their husbands and they die. You are left. Your wife is left to fend for herself back in those days. Widows were especially vulnerable members of society. And the church placed an emphasis on showing the respect for widows. The church, the capital C church, this new church. The Pharisees disregarded them, even though it says specifically in the law to not. Did you guys know that? That the Pharisees disregarded them completely. This may have been one reason why the church stood out so positively in the culture. Because it's a new concept. It's like, finally, somebody's doing something about all these widows. Especially against the backdrop of the Pharisees who completely ignored them. The church supported widows by taking collections and distributing the money and food to these widows to support them. Somewhere along the way, the process totally fell apart. The widows of the local Hebrew Jews were receiving a, quote, disproportionate share of the support. You see what's happening? This, um, how would something like this arise? How could this happen? How could this have been overlooked or shortchanged? How is this happening in my mind? Who would have instigated that process? Or I guess as a leader of an organization, how did this happen under my leadership? What's going on? So today we would assume that it was the fault of the church leader, wouldn't we? Who was biased, perhaps, or incompetent to be a leader. But at this point in the church history, there are only... One group of people who are leading the church. Who are they? The apostles. It's like the org chart goes like this. It's like the org chart and then everybody else. You know, you ever work for a place like that? It's all about the leader. Well, that's a terrible failed business model. It's a terrible organizational model. It's, it doesn't work. And as we see with these 10,000 people and the widows and the organization, it's falling apart. It's weak. It's shallow. So 
It's the unfair distribution of food that was the result, that came as a result of the congregation itself conducting the distribution in a biased fashion in the favor of the who. Which kind of widows were getting all the food? The Hebrew widows. It's likely that the greater number of the Jews in the Jerusalem church were Hebrews. So more, more Hebrews were being uh, were counted for inside of this new church movement. So the majority of the church body probably favored the Hebrew widows, naturally resulting in an unfair distribution. Now, before you guys start knocking them too bad, think about your own life. I mean, I don't want to step on any toes, but last time you went to church, last time you were at a church, maybe you don't go to church right now, but I definitely do. And I definitely, if I'm completely being open and honest with you guys, now you guys are probably saying, wow, I'm never listening to that guy again. I judge some people. You know what I'm talking about. That guy that maybe hasn't taken a bath in a couple years. Or uh, maybe that guy that sings off key, you know. Or maybe those that family that has those like little tin, tin rug rats, as, as my dad used to call them. And they're always, they're always distracting people. Well, you start saying, hmm, I know those kinds of people. You know what I'm saying? Have I struck a bell? This is what's going on inside this church. You see this? Oh, those are Hellenistic Jews. Hmm. I know those kinds of people. They're troublemakers. They're liberal. They're conservative. They're this kind of person. They're this kind of person. Do you see this? And when the Hellenistic widows raised a complaint, a dispute arose. You can see the Hellenistic widow going, um, could I have uh, my extra helping of rice this week? And people got mad. We can see a pattern emerging here in Luke's account. Can I point something out real quick? There's a DNA here of Satan's attack that I, I don't want us to pass up. At least this is what I found. The enemy works to divide the church over a few key things. Number one, temptation, okay, of money. Big one. He also does something else with possessions. Ananias, Spire. Uh, honor. Pride. Where did I get all that? Ananias and Sapphira. That's a, this is a this is a benchmark lie that wreaks havoc on our churches still today that Satan uses. You know what the second one is? He works through persecution. That not prosecution. Persecution. The painful kind of stuff. Yeah, prosecution. And, and, and yeah. Exactly. He uses persecution to intimidate the brethren. Do you see this in view as well? So do you see how Satan came in and did number one to no avail? In fact, God used it to punctuate a very specific instrument of hypocritical 
uh, to drive out hypocrites. But then number two, we see happening right now to intimidate them. So this is where Stephen's second half of the story will begin next week. This week, we're talking about an, the incident of the widows. But I don't want to pass this up because this persecution is meant to intimidate most times by the hand of the enemy. And the question is, is how are they going to respond? So this is a part of the story that Luke, Luke is laying out. I want to find out how the early church is going to respond to, to Stephen's death. Well, that's not this week. That's next week. This, this incident highlighted to the apostles the need for additional leadership. This is the, the outcome, which I think is amazing. They didn't freak out. They didn't start yelling. They just said, we got to make a plan, guys. We got to address this. So in response to the argument, the apostles break into motion. They bring the entire church together and announce the need for additional leadership. The reason for additional leadership is obvious. Church leaders, if you're listening to me, make sure that before you, you gather the church together to talk about needs, that the need is obvious. The needs of the church had grown beyond the capabilities of 12 dudes <laughs> to handle everything. The apostles expressed the need by saying it is not desirable. Underline that one. It's not desirable, in other words, pleasing, for them to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Let's consider what the apostles are proposing. First, the word pleasing suggests, that pleasing word, suggests that the apostles know there is an audience watching their behavior. Who's the audience? It's actually the Lord. You see that? That they're not so concerned about the audience of the Jews. They're concerned about the Lord, the audience of one. Man, that strikes a bell for me. As a leader in the church, my audience that I need to be mostly concerned about is the Lord. Secondly, the thing that will displease the Lord is neglecting the word of God for a lesser. Hold on. Wait a minute, man. What are we talking about? The highest level of leadership in the church were to be primarily, hope you're hearing me, if not exclusively, devoted to teaching God's word. Period. That's it. To do otherwise would not be pleasing to God's word. It's not following God's word. God said, this, we will do it. Even something as important as loving and feeding helpless widows was not as important as teaching God's word. Obviously, the need still had to be met. Sound familiar? We run into this all the time. Which is why the apostles moved to a point, here it is, deacons. Deacons, it's the first time we've ever talked about this. But it's worth remembering that the model presented here is that the role of the congregational leader, a pastor, a pastor, is to teach 
God's word. Am I being too potent? Just what it is. It's simple. And nothing should come before that duty. They were to be, quote, devoted to it, to prayer and the teaching of the word. Other duties should be performed by other leaders. In my opinion, this is just Ben's opinion. I try not to shove my opinion in too much. But the pastor's weekly schedule in any church should be dominated by teaching and preparing for teaching. In my opinion. Shouldn't be probably scooping the snow. My dad, let me tell you a little story real quick. My dad used to mow the entire lawn of our church every single week. And us sons, we grew up mowing the church's lawn. Guys, this was a farm. So it was like the size of an acreage. It was huge. I spent most of my summers just mowing the church. So one day, the, uh, uh, a church member said, hey, hey, uh, Ted, dad's name is Ted. We're going to take that off your hands. He had a hard time letting go. I promise you. Well, he started this thing called Munch and Mow. Munch and Mow. Us Christians love to talk. or We love to talk. Yeah, we love to talk. But we also like to eat. So he started this little weekly shindig called Munch and Mow. You come mow the church, and then we have supper together. It was amazing. All these men would come bring their mowers, and ladies would come in there and mow, and we'd eat. And then we'd get all grass-stained, and then we'd go and have hamburgers on the grill. It was amazing. But let me tell you, that wouldn't have happened unless he would have not let go. Like, it could have just been his gig forever. He wasn't getting paid for it. It was just our thing that we did. Well, this is a situation where they needed to let Ted Schaefer go study God's word so he can be devoted to prayer and teaching. We'll handle the lawn. No problem. Do you see that? We need more people like that. It was going on in the first century church. So other duties can be performed by other leaders. So the apostles bring the congregation together and announce the decision. The announcement makes clear three things to the congregation. Teaching God's word is preeminent to the church. Period. Number two, other needs will be met by other leaders. Third, three, these leaders have to be backed that have the backing of the apostles. You see the org chart, the accountability chart starting to form? It's a God accountability chart. This isn't something man came up with. You can feel the spirit moving here in the text. The selection process was also placed in the hands of the congregation. Though we remember that Acts, let me, a little, little side note. Do you guys remember Acts isn't a doctrinal book? Do you guys remember that this isn't a manual for church operation? So you guys are probably like, what are you talking about, Ben? How does this apply to us? Are we supposed to like do this? The answer is yes, in this case. Why? Because it's identically mirrored in 1 Timothy and Titus. We can back it up in other places, suggesting that this practice for identifying leaders is an intended, is intended to be replicated and modeled after. Here's the model. Here it is. The pastoral leadership of the church is a dual or plurality 
of teachers with manifest authority to conduct the church's affairs. I took this from a really good explanation of uh, uh, from a uh, from a teacher who wrote uh, some bylaws, some example bylaws for for church planting. And I really love this. I'm going to read it again. Uh, the pastoral leadership of a church is a plurality of teachers with manifest authority to conduct the church's affairs. I love that. They are not beholden to the congregation. We have a very strange model of churches today. And we're going to see that in the first century, it was a whole lot different than what we got going on. The sheep do not lead the shepherd. Did you know that? It wasn't supposed to be that way. This isn't a survey. We don't take a survey of how, how good we are as a pastor and take our direction from the sheep. We take our direction from God. Since we do not have apostles today, we refer to these men, these people, these humans, as elders. Paul told Titus to appoint elders. Titus 1.5 says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would, Crete was a city, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So a shepherd appoints, an, appoints elders based on their qualifications, listen to me, to teach. Strange, right? You don't, you don't elect an elder because everybody loves or her. You don't, you don't appoint an elder because they have a lot of money. You don't appoint an elder because they, they've planted 10 churches. You appoint an elder based upon their qualifications to, uh, to, to teach God's word, devoted to prayer and God's word. The congregation then selects and votes upon deacons. Leadership from among themselves to minister to the other needs of the body. We don't have the widow system right now, but we have other systems, don't we? We have huge needs coming into our churches. These lesser leaders that are ministering to the body, the deacons, must have other qualifications that Paul outlines in 1 Timothy and Titus. You guys have read all those. It's qualifications of character. Here are the qualifications. Uh, our good reputation, you can sum it up with this, good reputation and the anointing of the Spirit, it says. Reputation is, uh, the reputation is this. Are they witnesses? Do they have a testimony? They must have a life and walk in faith that bears witness to godliness. It wraps up all that Paul outlines later, later in his letters. Paul goes into great detail about this. They must be full of the Spirit, which means having a life obviously under the control of the Spirit and direction of the Spirit. They don't rebel against the Spirit. One thing leads to another. This is it. Filled with the Spirit, it leads to a good reputation. Filled with the Spirit, good reputation. Proof. See what I mean? The seven men selected are an interesting group as Nate uh, fired off their names. We can tell a lot by their names. First, Stephen. 
gets the most attention in the group because he of his later focus in the chapter. Philip is listed second because of his role in chapter 8, as you guys will see. The rest have no further mention in the Bible. You don't even know about these people in the rest of the Bible. But all of the names are Greek, indicating that they were Hellenistic Jews. Interesting, don't you think? And one of them, named Nicholas. He was a Greek who converted to Judaism. Yeah, it's not St. Nicholas. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that typical Stephen. This shows that the election of the deacons was clearly under the Spirit's direction. Do you see that? You can trust this Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do with his church. We might have expected at least an even distributed distribution of Hebrew and Hellenistic Jews, right? We would, all in this room would probably say, well, it needs to be three Hellenistic Jews, leaders, and three Hebrews. No, the Spirit said, nope, we're going to have them all be Greek-speaking Jews. Or even predominantly Hebrew, perhaps. But it was all Hellenistic Jews, showing that the Spirit is at work. So, the laying on of hands, what's going on with that? See that? They all laid hands. Well, this is a symbolic gesture. This isn't magic. This isn't um, a, a prerequisite. But this is symbolic, representing the anointing, the, the covering or the pouring over. The anointing means to pour over. Work of the Spirit. All authority and power for ministry comes from the Spirit. That's what laying on of hands represents. Now look at the re result of this step of laying on of hands. Verse 7. I'm going to read it. The word of God kept on spreading. Mm. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the what? Priests? What? What are we talking about? The priests? We're becoming obedient to the faith. So the word of God kept spreading because the apostles were freed from these other responsibilities, waiting tables. This in turn led to the further increase of the church. Then it increased numerically. Don't miss this. This is a great opportunity to see how growth can be godly. And now a new element, priests. Priests, one after the other, were coming into faith. What? This is a remarkable, crazy, crazy thing. Because the priests of that day would have seen have been Sadducees. They're sad, you see. <laughs> Since the Sadducees were in power during that time. So we're talking about people who don't believe in the resurrection coming to faith. And we see God adding to the church from among the ranks of their enemy in that city. You can call them enemies. And this revelation is likely the cause of the next episode of external threat to the church. Somebody read chapter 6, 8 through 14. We're coming down to the end. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. 
but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave them as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently <laughs> at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, well, guys, that's some very interesting uh, excerpt. We got to figure out what's going on here. We got some supernatural stuff going on. We got some serious things to, to crack down on, and we got like 15 minutes. So here we go. <laughs> Stephen is working in the full throttle power of the Holy Spirit. Can't you see that? And he has evidently received supernatural power to perform miracles and teach with authority, even though, side note, he's not an apostle. Uh-oh, a break in, the <laughs> break in the mold, the formula. God can do that if he wants to. We know in chapter 8 that Philip has been given similar powers. So apparently the seven deacons were equipped with a similar fashion. Stephen and Philip are quick, clearly not capable of these things prior to their appointment. But after their appointment, they are. Traces back to the apostles, doesn't it? This is an example of how the apostles were able to appoint others to perform miracles. The apostles could do that. Seriously. This is a very gray matter in the, in the church today. But after the apostles died, so did their power. This is biblical. This is a very hotly debated topic. Are there apostles? Can you hand it down? Where's my superpowers? Well, here it is. The, it stopped with them because it had to originate with the apostles per Jesus' uh, mandate and purpose for the first church. Secondly, notice that Stephen is not depicted ever waiting tables. No doubt he did his fair share of table waiting, but it's also likely that he had other, the other seven appointed others to do that task. They were called deacons. They were deacon leaders. They deek. That's the thing. You got to let them deacons deek. You got to let them do their thing. I mean, that's where the that's where the community is served. That's where needs are met. The ministry of the the gospel can can meet the, the boots on the ground.